0: Well, we're carrying on this morning in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're up to chapters 3 and 4. Now, you may be thinking that's an awful lot to get through in one morning. You'd be right. Um, I'm not going to read the whole of chapter 3 and 4. The reason we're not um, doing all of it is a lot of it is thematically similar to what we've already done in chapter 1. If you've been reading through the book, um, you'll probably have noticed that. But I am going to read this big chunk, so bear with me. I've got it especially printed in big print as my eyes are decaying with my age so I'm hoping I will keep going. So, chapter three. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul, only servants to whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task? I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has made it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarding according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given to me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one of you should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through flames. Don't you know that you are yourselves are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourself. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools, so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word of, or the world of life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. And then moving down towards the end of chapter 4 from verse 14. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only who these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word to us today, even when it seems very difficult. We just pray that you will open our eyes to what it is we need to receive from these verses today. In Jesus' name, Amen. (coughs) What does it mean to be mature? That wasn't a rhetorical question. What does it mean? I've got a microphone. Anyone want to give me an answer? Go on, Helen. to develop self-control. I like that one. Anybody else? What does it mean to be mature? Go on, John. Um, to have learned positively from experiences. To have learned positively from experiences. Like that one as well? Anybody else, perhaps one or two more? You if you're a cheese, it means you taste nice. <laughs> I was wondering whether we might get cheese in there somewhere. Anything else? It does, though, doesn't it? You mellow. To make good choices. choices. Brilliant. Do you want to be mature? I suppose that's the next question. If it means being like a good cheese, I'd probably say no. But maturity, I think, in many ways, is about getting to a place of greater depth, isn't it? When we mature, we have learned from things, and we start to cope better, we start to deal with things better, we live better, we work better, and we start to grow. And in this passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul really starts to take us on a journey about issues of maturity, of building, and of humility. See, the problem in the church in Corinth was not that they didn't know enough, but that what they knew wasn't maturing them. They weren't applying what they knew. Verse 1, he says, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Wednesday night, um, I was looking after our two boys. Claire was out at a concert with work, and um, I was going to cook them tea. And suddenly, the golden arches of McDonald's seemed (laughs) highly appealing. So we trundled off to limb services, and we got our offal and our (laughs) processed chicken, and we sat there in the delightful surroundings eating this food. And on the table next to us, there was a family. And it looked like it was mum, grandma, a couple of older grandkids, and a baby sat in a high chair eating chips. Now, when I talk about a baby, I'm not talking about a six-week-old. Don't worry. It was probably about a year to 18 months. And this baby was sat there. And the family were talking to him. And they were saying things like, stop spitting your food down pick your chips up, go on and eat another one. You know, like sort of basic things. Because when you're talking to an infant, you have to talk to them on a level they understand, don't you? You couldn't have gone to that baby and said, you know, my good man, talk to me about Brexit. <laughs> you couldn't have gone and had sort of really intellectual discussions. You have to speak at the level they understand. And he was learning the basic stuff of life. How to eat well. How to behave in polite company, even in McDonald's. You see... We learn stuff, don't we, when we're young. Basic stuff that keeps us in good stead for the rest of life. If I came to your house for dinner today and sat there and halfway through spat my food out and then threw a potato at you, you'd think, this man is a bit strange. This man really hasn't got a clue. You see, the basic stuff needs to last, doesn't it? The basic stuff needs to carry on. The problem with Corinth was that they were still infants in their faith. They were still, if you like, in the spiritual high chair throwing their food around. They hadn't yet grown up. They hadn't matured into who God wanted them to be. Look at verse 2. Paul says they need milk, not solid food. They are not ready for solid food because, verse 3, they are still worldly. They are still worldly. What does he mean by that? Well, I don't think what he means is, you know, you've done your basic theology course, but you've not passed it so we're going to have to go back over it before we can go on to an advanced level. I don't think he's saying that at all. You know, we live in a world, don't we, that values knowledge, probably above a lot of other things. And it's something that has happened in our culture probably for the last two, 300 years, and it was something that was happening in the Greek culture, the Roman culture of the day. If I'm sat at my desk using my computer and something goes wrong, I think if only I knew how to put this right. When our car... Breaks down. I'm thinking if only I had more knowledge, I could fix it and wouldn't have to pay to go to the garage. You know, those of you amongst us who are medics in the medical profession this morning, you're probably thinking there are times when if only we knew more about the human body, we could put things right in people. If only we knew more, we need to study more, work harder, learn more, gather more information, and then that will solve things. But Paul then cuts across this. See, the problem wasn't knowledge. They knew enough. They knew that Christ had been crucified for them. There were loads of people in Corinth who offered more knowledge. They didn't need knowledge, but what they needed was transformation. They needed application of what they already knew so that it went deep into their hearts. You are worldly. I don't think I'd like it if somebody came to me and said that. It's quite a derogatory thing in biblical terms. You are of the world. You are not thinking spiritually. See, in the church in Corinth, the Spirit had been at work. They had received Jesus. The Spirit was pouring out gifts onto the church. But as I was preparing this, I I was sort of thinking it's a bit like a parched field. Imagine one of the fields at the back of church having sat under the summer sun. So you've got to imagine it. It's highly unlikely that this happens with our rainfall around here. But imagine, you know, when the the ground gets so dry, it starts to crack. And it becomes really compacted and, and dense. And then you get a thunderstorm. What happens to the rain? It just runs off, doesn't it? It doesn't make much of a difference. It needs to rain and rain and rain and rain. And I just wonder if the church in Corinth was actually a bit like that. They were compacted and hard. They had not yet opened themselves up to the transforming power of the Spirit. Paul is saying, you're still in your high chairs. You've not moved on. This gospel is not resonating deep enough. We have to keep going back to basics. I started um, learning to play the piano when I was four, My grandma was a a piano teacher, and at lunchtime, I used to go um, to her house for a piano lesson. It was in the the days when in infant school, you didn't stay at school for dinner, but you went home. Um, And so a couple of days a week, because my mum worked, I used to to go to my grandma's house. And I can remember still sat there in a freezing cold room with this enormous piano, um, learning to play middle C over and over again, and then learning to play with one hand and then the other hand, then putting them together. And it was the basics of what to do when you sat at a piano. Now, when I'm playing the piano today, all that stuff still counts. But I don't have to think about it anymore. It just happens. The same way when I'm eating a meal, I don't have to think not to throw food across the table at Claire. (laughs) These things just happen. It becomes instinctive behavior. It goes from learning to memory to instinct. And then it just happens. But you see, this problem about spiritual immaturity was not just unique to Corinth. It happened right across the early church, and it happens today, doesn't it? This is from Hebrews 5, verses 12 to 14. In fact, though by this time you ought to be leaders, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Constant use, constant application of the gospel into our lives. Those who should have been teachers were still sat in the high chairs. Those who should have known what it meant to live as a Christian were still there drinking milk. The results in Corinth? Well, chapter 1 told us, and we see it happening again. Here in chapter Three and four, the church was divided. It was splitting off around different people. They were segmented. they can't move on. they can't even get on with each other. There's an old story. Um, it's probably made up. most of these sort of slightly apocryphal stories are about a preacher, and it's about this preacher who preached a sermon about the love of God. And second week after he preached that sermon, he came back and preached the same thing over again. Preached it the following week as well. People in his church actually started to notice that he was preaching the same sermon. I had a lecturer at college who actually did that by accident once. Went to preach in a church, didn't know down what sermon he'd been and preached. Went back a month later, preached the same one, and no one noticed. But anyway, this person, he kept preaching. Preaching and preaching and preaching this same sermon. And eventually it got to the point where the, the leaders of the church were getting a bit concerned. Why is it that this man's preaching the same sermon over... And over again, has he given up? Has he got nothing more to say? So they challenged him and said, why are you preaching to us about God's love every single week? And he simply said this, I'll keep preaching it until I see that you're doing it. Until I see that actually you're being transformed. Until you're actually starting to love one another. There is nowhere else to go until we've got these basic things in foundation. Now I don't want to put words into Paul's mouth here. But I could imagine the kind of things Paul would be saying to the church would be things like, how can I go on and teach you, like the the writer to the Hebrews said, about the righteousness of God, about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, about the deeper work of the Spirit, when actually you still haven't got past base camp. You still haven't got past the basics. You're still not loving one another. There's still division. How could you, as a church, move on when actually all this stuff is still going on in the background? Last Sunday night, Scott was preaching and he was reminding us of the importance of um, what Jesus says in John thirteen thirty-four. He says, A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. Love one another. In a sense, it's not rocket science. But it is the most profound thing as Christians, we will ever do, to demonstrate Jesus to the world. Yeah, I think of my own Christian life, and there are times when I mess up, they are frequent. There are times that I'm not patient, I don't demonstrate the gifts of the Spirit. There are times when I perhaps say or do the wrong things. You know, each time I do that, it's not because I need more information, but I need transformation in my heart, by the Spirit, of those things that I already know. It just hasn't quite sunk in deep enough yet. My heart is still like the parched field. So let's turn back to that question, what does it mean to be spiritually mature? What does it mean to be spiritually mature? Are we as individuals, are we as a church, ready for solid food? Have we actually got out of our high chairs, Or are we still there throwing food at one another? What does it mean? How would we know if we're growing into maturity? Well, I think some of the things some of the pointers are that actually we are loving one another. We are loving one another. We have grasped that deeper understanding of what it means to be loved by God. That is starting to filter into the rest of our character. It starts to change how we view ourselves, how we view one another. I think for Paul, his point is simple. Spiritual maturity happens when actually what we talk about, what we speak about, is exactly the same as what we live when all that is starting to be linked in, then we start to see ourselves get out of our high chairs and move on. And then he goes on to talking about building. Paul has been called as an apostle. He's called to build the church, he's called to plant churches in Gentile areas particularly, and to see them develop into fully functioning Christian communities. And in verses 10 to 12, he talks about the process that's been going on He builds on the foundation of Christ. He's not building a Pauline church, if you like. He's not building a church in his image, but he's building it in the image of Jesus. You know, today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have made that commitment to follow Jesus, God is calling you to be a builder. Now, I don't mean necessarily that type of builder. He may be calling you to be a builder of that type, and if he is, go and do it, and do it very well. But in a sense, we're called to be builders of the church, builders of God's kingdom, But Paul here also says that actually he realises that he can't do everything. He can't do it all. He needs to pass on things to other people. But sadly, too often in churches, there seems to be a few people scurrying around trying to do everything, whilst a lot of other people sit on the side and watch the people scurrying around doing everything. I don't know about you, but if I had to sit on a building site watching it day after day after day, I'd get a bit bored. It might be quite good to go and see it every three or four months and see how it's going and pop in and out. But if you're there, week after week, day after day, as an observer, it would get a bit boring. We're called to be builders. And I believe each of us here has a role in building the Church of Jesus Christ here. Or it may be somewhere else. But we have a role and a purpose. If we're open to it, God will call us to do that. It might be that our calling is to share Jesus with other people. You know, we're called to the role of an evangelist. It might be um, that we're called to leadership. And there may be some of you here grappling with that as at the moment we're looking for new leaders in church. It may be that God is calling you to serve in one of our support teams here in church. Perhaps you've got a heart for finance or for mission and evangelism. Or perhaps you've got a heart for youth or or premises. Perhaps it's something external. You've got a heart for prisons ministry or rock, or young people's work. Perhaps you've got a heart for welcoming people, or being hospitable. You know, the church needs builders, not people sat at the edge of the building site spectating. But it also needs good builders. The first house that we bought needed absolutely everything doing to it. The basic shell wasn't too bad, but it needed um, basically a new kitchen, new bathroom, It needed new carpets, it needed redecorating. The back garden needed levelling and starting again. The front garden was a total mess and needed redoing. And the front garden, we decided to get this man to do it who had been recommended to us as was good at doing driveways. So he came and gave us these plans of what he was going to do. We talked it through. He was going to put a new wall up, nice gates, place for two cars to be parked. So he got to work over the week that he did the work, he built the wall wrong, had to take it down and try again. He put the flags down, did those wrong, and had to take them back up and do it again. He got cross with our neighbour. He then got very cross with our neighbour and threatened him with a spade. <laughs> I came back home one day to find the police were on the drive questioning him for threatening to assault our next-door neighbour with the spade. A builder like that is not good. Those are not the kind of builders that actually we want, are they? Paul talks about being builders that build stuff that will last. Look at the different materials he talks about building with. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Those are things that can withstand fire. And then um, wood, hay, and straw that are things that can't withstand fire. Verse 13, their work will be shown for what it is. It will be revealed with fire. I don't know about you, but when we're reading those, those are sobering verses, aren't they? They're really serious verses that Paul gives us here. We have to be clear here, this is not a matter of salvation. This, your Salvation is through grace, by faith, and that alone. Everybody here is still saved. But actually, some people just get through the flames and their work is shown to be worthless. What are you building in your life today? What are we building as a church? Are we building with godly wisdom and priorities? Or are we building with human ideas? Are we building at the foundation of Jesus Christ? Or are we building with our own set of agendas? Think of the stuff in your own life. What are you building in your own life? Is it godly? Will it last? Will it last into eternity? Or is it just froth and bubble that will get burnt up in the fire? That's just some tough questions. What are you building with? What are you building with? Paul then moves us on. Um, We go through the rest of of chapter 4. We're not going to look at that now. It's all about Paul and his apostleship. But we come to the end of chapter 4, and Paul talks about humility. One of the problems Paul highlights for the church in Corinth was that they didn't have many fathers in Christ. It's an interesting phrase. I think what, what he's meaning there is the father figure particularly in the culture that Paul is writing, is the one who can sort of show everybody else how to live, how to do something, the kind of patriarchal type figure over a community. And you get a scary verse, verse 16. Just look at verse 16 if you've got the Bible in front of you. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Anybody like to apply that verse to themselves? Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. It can sound like Paul is being anything other than humble here. You know, I've got it sorted. I know what spiritual maturity is about. I'm the one who knows, you know, just follow me and everything will be great. But actually, it's totally the opposite. You see, because Paul will put Jesus first and say, because Jesus is first, because I'm living in this way, because I've worked out what it means to follow him, actually, there is stuff in my life that is worthy of imitation. Boasting for Paul is all about the cross. It's all about what Jesus has done, not what he can do. Someone once asked me a question, probably about 10 years ago, that's always resonated with me. And it was a question that that was this. Is your life something you would commend to other people? Is the way you live something that you would commend to others? It's almost like a, a step back from saying, imitate me. But it's actually like saying, has the way that the gospel has started to transform my life, my priorities, the things that are important, has it made my life such that I'd be quite happy for people to look at my life and say, yeah, that's commendable. That's commendable. Is your life commendable? Has the gospel transformed you so that living and loving is just instinctive? So that you become that person who Jesus wants you to be? Verse 18, Paul says, some of you have become arrogant. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. When do we become proud and arrogant, spiritually speaking? Well, I think it's when there is that huge chasm, isn't it? We've talked about this in recent weeks. Between what we say, the things we proclaim, and the reality on the ground. And we end up with that chasm. For Paul, that didn't exist. Does it exist in my life? Does it exist in yours? I know it does in mine. Does it exist in yours? Are we open to the transforming of the Spirit? C.S. Lewis says this. He says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see that there is something above you. You cannot see there is something above you. I love that. We become proud when we forget the position of God in our lives. And we think we're all sussed and all sorted. And pride comes actually when we're building wrongly. It comes when Jesus isn't enthroned in his rightful place. See, the mature Christian, the person that Paul is saying we're called to be, is the one who enthrones Jesus first, and then we follow him and allow him to change and transform us. Calling us to be mature, builders with a humble heart. Let's just pray, shall we? (coughs) I don't know where you're up to in your life today, whether you feel that you're in a place where actually you need to mature as a Christian, where you need the Holy Spirit's to to fall onto the, if you like, the field of your life and actually for for that to sink in deep into your very being. Steve, a few moments of silence. Perhaps you need to do business with God about that today. maybe some people here this morning who God is actually saying you need to get on with building, that at the moment there's a lot of spectating in, in perhaps some of our lives and actually the call is to be a builder. sung earlier, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Holy Spirit, may you be welcome in our hearts. Lord, we welcome you in and we pray that you will do whatever work it is you need to do in us today. Help us to become mature in you. Ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm in Phil.